Good evening, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you um, to the City Club of the Mahoney Valley Views and Brews series here at Susie's and to officially get us started. For me, as the world turns, democracy, liberalism, and new world orders is such an apt title for this panel. With the record turnout for the midterm elections just last month, the continued acts of hate and terror on the basis of race and ethnicity and other identity markers, the reemergence of a nationalist America First rhetoric, the massacre of Jewish citizens at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, the deployment of troops, tear gassing of migrants, and temporary closure of our southern borders just over a week ago. It's clear we're going to have a lot to talk about. We have three very distinguished panelists to guide the conversation tonight. Dr. Jacob LeBenz, Director of Judaic and Holocaust Studies at YSU and Professor of History. The Honorable Gina Abercrombie Winstanley, retired U.S. Ambassador to Malta. And Dr. David Simonelli, also Professor of History at YSU. Before we get started with our discussion, I'll let each of our panelists say a little bit more about themselves and what they do. Jacob? Uh, hello, everybody, and to my Jewish siblings who may be listening, happy Hanukkah. Um, this is my third semester at YSU, uh, where, as Dean Blair explained, I'm the director of the Judaic Center for Judaic and Holocaust Studies. In my own work, I write about the history of Jews in and from Central Europe during the Cold War, with particular attention to, way, to the ways that states try to manage ethnic belonging and integration. Jean Abercrombie Wynne Stanley. I am a career diplomat. Uh, I've been one for about 32 years. Most of my time has been spent in the Middle East. I've served in Iraq, Egypt, uh, Tunisia, Israel, and Malta as ambassador. I also spent over four years as a deputy assistant secretary doing counterterrorism, uh, often linked to the Middle East. So unfortunately, those flow very well together. As a diplomat, of course, I've been representing the United States around the world, and I am an Ohio girl. Uh, my name is David Simonelli. Uh, I've been at YSU now for 15 years. Uh, I came in as the professor of British history, uh, and so my research specialties are in British culture in the 20th century, but I do a lot of teaching of contemporary world history, uh, world since 1945. Uh, and so a lot of my background and presumably a lot of my discussion here tonight will be based upon that, uh, the research that I've done in order to do that teaching. Thank you so much, panelists. We appreciate your expertise. So this first question is for all of our panelists to address. And um, it's an allusion to Stephen Johnson's recent book and former BBC PBS series, How We Got to Now, in which he chronicles the historical roots of various innovations that have benefited society at large. And in thinking about that book, I wanted to remix the question and ask our panelists to consider from their own professional expertise how they think we've gotten to now in terms of the rise of nationalism in the United States and abroad? You know, if we're going to talk about nationalism in the United States, there's a very long history that we could be uh, addressing, a very long history of racism, a country forged in ethnic cleansing, a country forged in slavery, uh, and long currents of anti-liberalism and populism. And I, I can't really do all of that in one minute. <laughs> Uh, what I think got us to now immediately is an uh, a increasing wealth gap, 
the decline of uh, the power of organized labor, lower standards of living, or at least a perception that our lives won't be better than our, our parents' lives. And we lost the narrative of the Cold War, which at least allowed us not to pay so much attention to ourselves and focus on an external and coherent enemy. And then we suffered the, uh, the Great Recession of 2008. And we like to tell ourselves this rhetoric about the United States of America, of one of increasing progress, of exceptionalism, of if we began imperfectly, to say the least, step by step, we've included more people into the promises of America and liberalism. And what we forget, though, is that the promises of liberalism have always been bound up in a context and that it's difficult to extend it to more people. And when we try to extend these promises of self-determination to uh, a larger and larger amount of citizens, it's harder to fulfill them. And that builds resentment. And so we're now facing a world, a globalized world, that we don't feel that we can control. But we're facing a globalized world where we can't vote to solve problems of climate change or what China's going to do. And this builds resentment, and you heard it from the president with his deeply anti-Semitic rhetoric of globalists controlling the world. You hear it from the alt-right manifesting what Carol Anderson is called white rage, and I would add to that male rage because it, uh, that particular grouping began with a misogynistic event. Um, and I think we can't leave out the role that Donald Trump has played. Uh, the researcher David Nywerk calls our current community alt-America, or that, or that community, alt-America, that through the figure of Donald Trump, through his campaign, he was able to go here a disparate right, a disparate anti-liberal right into a single movement that understands itself as nationally American. And that's what we're facing. I would like to add to that everything he said, yes. Um, and I would, from my perspective, I'm going to focus on two things, and that is an increase in refugees and migrants based on our actions around the world, and an increase in terrorism. Keeping in mind all the things that are true about our current president, this situation did not start with Donald Trump. And certainly in my four years as a U.S. ambassador serving in Europe, the country I served in was the only country where we had a refugee reprocessing center in Europe for refugees coming up from sub-Saharan Africa. Asia and Southeast Asia. So I and the U.S. government used to fight with European governments about their treatment of refugees and, and migrants. And we had a higher standard at the time. And therefore, we were talking about what the U.S. government was doing to take these people into the country and hoping that others would step up as well. And there are many countries around the world the Europeans we've seen on television, you saw the Hungarians kicking at migrants as they were trying to come through. You've heard about Australia that has sent all of their refugees to Papua New Guinea, a really difficult place to live, in order to be processed. And we've been talking about doing that even with Mexico. But that was four years ago, five years ago. This is not new. It is that combination of less money to go around and increasing people looking for it. And I'm always reminded of a line from one of my favorite plays, which is Jesus Christ Superstar. And there's a line in the overture, in the opening song, where Judas says to Jesus, why did you choose such a backward land in such a strange time? And I would say that the time 
where all these changes are happening, whether it's the Arab Spring and other revolutions, that the capacity of those of us who are haves to help them out and move them where we know they should be and could be is very small indeed. Wow, we're really thinking along the same lines along this panel here. Um, I, uh, when looking at the historical roots of this, um, I actually would go back, I mean, you can talk a thousand years um, to begin with just the concept of the nation itself, which is uh, highly unusual and very Eurocentric. The idea that because a people shares a language, because they share a geography, a religious, um, uh, a religion, uh, certain aspects of culture, economy, and everything else that they should run their own state entirely separate from everybody else, which was, you know, when it developed in Europe, highly unusual because the way that states were determined was that people beat the hell out of each other. Okay? And originally, what made an empire state or a city state great was its diversity in terms of its ability to connect to other people, bring them in as immigrants, um, rule over them, and, you know, put up with the way an empire would see it, uh, their religions, their cultures, uh, the way that they ran things as far as you know, local government and all that would be concerned. We've now gotten to a stage where Europeans have remade the world in the image of the nation state. And what we're finding is that you know, people are looking at, you have to have an other in order to have a nation. You have to have somebody that you're defining as an opposite, as a potential enemy. And we have now reorganized the world into 181 of these nation states. And what are Europeans doing after two world wars in the 20th century trying to get away from the nation and create the European Union to break down all these self-same distinctions? The rest of the world is trying to catch up in comparison. I think society-wise, there are problems internally in different Western societies with the concept of meritocracy, an idea that was created by a sociologist in Britain named Michael Young in the 1950s. And meritocracy is a pejorative term that he came up with. The idea that you pull people from uh, society and give them an equal opportunity to succeed, but that certain people, when they succeed, will make it up into an elite and be the people that come to dominate that society. Well, what happens to everybody else? In particular, after a single generation, when that, that group of people that have merited their opportunity to become a part of the elite have a chance to protect their children when they arise. That's going to create a lot of resentment at the bottom amongst everyone else. And the very, you know, as far as Young was concerned, the dangers were in the concept of merit itself, um, as well as the idea of ocracy, I guess, those people ruling over things, because how do you determine who, you know, what is worthwhile in order to merit. Um, bringing people into a bureaucracy, bringing people into, you know, becoming civil servants um, and serving um, a higher order, how does this somehow make you far more worthy than, you know, the average car mechanic that you need in order to get to work every day? Right. Um, and the last thing, you know, something I was just reading about before I came in here is a reaction to politically correct rhetoric, I think, is taking place right now. Um, you go in um, the Philippines, in India, in Italy today, and obviously with Trump, clearly what we just saw in Brazil. People are responding and reacting against 
the niceties of accuracy, labeling, and positive affirmations in favor of language that echoes knee-jerk responses to alleged political problems, and I would put that in quotes, like immigration, in order to, you know, pick up votes, and people respond to that. Uh, and it is happening everywhere. Uh, and, you know, goes back, as you were saying, a lot earlier than uh, just Donald Trump. Thank you. This next question is directed initially to Dr. LeBenz. Um, in Escape from Freedom, Eric Fromm noted that, quote, when fascism came into power, most people were unprepared, both theoretically and practically. They were unable to believe that man could exhibit such propensities for evil, such lust for power, such disregard for the rights of the weak, or such yearning for submission. Only a few had been aware of the rumbling of the volcano preceding the outbreak. So the question um, is, um, what are the you know, key conditions and indicators of a country moving into a fascist government, and are we getting there? Uh, thanks. So I'll answer that, I think, in two parts. And the first is uh, that you need to understand, I think, the rise of fascism in context. And fascism rose in response to, in many ways, on the one hand, dissolution with the nation-state system, with democracy, but on the other hand, real fears of rising communist revolution in the Soviet Union, uh, in Bavaria, right? So this is a real fear of an insurgent left. And it's not that people didn't see it coming. Marxists had theorized what capitalism was, what fascism was, right? They saw these things coming. And if you look at the November 1932 elections in Germany, right? Yes, Hitler won 33% of the vote, but put together the Social Democrats and the Communists won 37% of the vote. There were people opposing Hitler in the streets. There was street violence, right? What happened was the traditional conservative parties, knowing they had nothing to answer, turned to maintain their own power and influence to the Nazis whom they could not control. And only once the Nazis seized power in this way did they outlaw dissent, did they begin the concentration camp system. So perhaps fascism looks like it sprung upon everyone at once, but only because we're looking at the difference between rising movements and the movements once they take power. So where we are right now, of course, is a rising movement, right? We're not living in a fascist United States of America. We can have this lovely conversation where all three of us have said quite negative things about the president, right, or about trends in American history facing no consequence. So what, what should be af we be afraid of? Well, there's f dissolution with democracy and with our institutions, and we see that changing. When I am asked what separates this from Weimar Germany, I used to always say we trust democracy, we trust our institutions, and I see that crumbling, and that's not only because of Donald Trump, though he has some role in it. Right? That's terrifying. An idea uh, we also see in fascism, a primacy of the group, usually defined racially, but not always. And the group as victim, victimized from within and from without. A veneration of violence. Personal identity through belonging to a group rather than through the liberal idea that we decide who we are. And a devotion to the authority of the leader. Now, Robert Paxton, one of the foremost theorists of fascism, reminds us that fascism isn't one thing. It's a political practice. And so we have to be very careful not to expect that what's going to come or what could come, whatever we may face, we can't expect that it's going to be what happened in Germany in 1933 to 1945 or in Italy. It's going to look very differently. Right? Some of the warnings are true. 
Fascists don't take power by a coup. They take power traditionally through our system. Whether they abuse them or not along the way, they do. Um, and I think one of the things that was pointed out by Christopher Browning in a recent article, and he's an important scholar of the Holocaust, is that today's liberal democracies, today's would-be authoritarian leaders of yesteryear have realized that they don't need full totalitarian control to maintain power. Right? They can accomplish what they want, install their friends and cronies into positions of power by taking control of the judiciary and taking advantage of the new media environment in which we live, either by controlling that media or by contributing to an ongoing process by which we no longer trust the media. And those are the things I think that we should be afraid of and we endanger ourselves if we expect to see jackboots on the street. It's not going to look like that here if it gets worse here. He actually defined it as illiberal democracy, the very terms that, uh, that you were talking about, and it's an excellent term for what we're headed at. It's the idea of just simply emasculating the opposition. Um, as long as you still have an opposition there, then you can at least call it democracy. You have a choice. You have a choice. Why don't you choose it? Because you don't want it, clearly. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact that, for example, one state government after another has managed through, um, you know, in the mostly Republican but also Democrats in uh, Maryland, have gerrymandered districts to make it so that if there is any kind of a change in terms of voting that they're effectively protected from this kind of stuff, you have a chance to vote for it. If you can't find enough people to do it, so be it. Right? Um, illiberal democracy, it's a terrific, um, terrific concept. This next question is for the ambassador. Uh, the United States has been viewed as the arbiter of democracy, yet we see instances where our long-standing allies in that cause have been alienated on issues of trade, climate change, nuclear disarmament, and human rights, while those governments who have embraced authoritarianism are now seen as worthy of diplomatic and economic negotiation. What are the consequences for our standing on the world stage as a result of this inversion? The consequence for our standing on the world stage initially is confusion. Um, as we all have observed in the last two years, trying to understand what U.S. policy is and why uh, it should be effective, not only for the United States, but for the rest of the world. And the president has repeatedly reiterated, it's America first, but not America alone. Um, but the actions don't comport with those words. So there's a lot of confusion among our allies, a lot of disbelief, a lot of tr trying to give the benefit of the doubt and hoping that what they're saying is not what they see. So these are the conversations that uh, diplomats have around the world as we try to explain uh, our current policies. So there are big things that aren't going forward in a smooth or logical fashion as policies have changed substantially from not only previous Democratic but previous Republican administrations, and it takes a lot of effort and time to tilt the ship of state in a new direction. It also is not smoothly done because there aren't people in place to effect the changes that the administration says it wants to make. So in the big things, and the little things, it also makes moving and maintaining our status difficult. 
because when you lose trust in the big things, it's also more difficult in the little things. And I'm talking about, you know, there hasn't been an announcement of we are no longer supporting women's empowerment around the world. But the Office of Global Women's Issues has not, the head of that has not been filled. So we're not doing anything. We're, we're kind of creeping along at the working level, hoping to get guidance, and it has not come. And there are a number of issues, including the number of ambassadors that are not in place and therefore cannot lead and carry out and implement U.S. policy changes because there's no one there to do it. And then it has an impact at the very working level, when people in the lower levels of government, whether it's domestic policy or international policy, see that there is not a path upward, that the values and ideals that all of us in this room and around the nation have been brought up to understand, believe, and internalize that are American values, that we, that we stand for integrity, that we fight for the underdog, that we promote democracy. All of those things have been flipped. The script is uncertain at best because sometimes the right thing comes out of the administration and sometimes it doesn't. So nobody really knows where we're standing, and it's more difficult to attract people even at the working level. I do a lot of work to attract them nonetheless because this too shall pass, and we will need people to represent the United States and put forward our policy. So those are the three things I see when we have such an uncertain leadership. Great, thank you. Um, just for time's sake, this next question is for Dr. Seminelli. Um, in his speech last month at the Paris World War I Armistice Day ceremony, French President Emmanuel Macron directly rebuked President Trump with his statement that nationalism, a term our American president has embraced, is a betrayal of patriotism. While the distinction between nationalism and patriotism has roots in the writing of George Orwell and others, notably for Orwell in the after aftermath of World War II, is it an apt one for our current context, or perhaps an oversimplification or false binary? Uh, I think it's very apt uh, for our current context. Just to, uh, you know, I have the definition that Orwell came up with, but I'll try to make it short. Um, Orwell effectively argues that nationalism is projecting, um, that it is offensive, that it is trying to impose your values on someone else. Patriotism is more defensive. You have a sense of what it means to be um, of a certain identity, and you are determined to protect that. So his definition is comparatively vague. Um, but in American terms, uh, it's kind of the distinction between what we are supposedly defending in the world, which, you know, by, in terms of these quotes, is a little bit projective in and of itself, making the world safe for democracy, um, George W. Bush defending our freedoms against al-Qaeda. Um, you know, it just the Civil War, um, the maintenance of the Constitution. Okay? Um, and how our culture has developed, particularly capitalist culture, over the course of 250 years into this, really, a tool of cultural imperialism. You know, I tell my classes often um, that, you know, most of the time what the world is annoyed about is not our freedoms or, al you know, I mean... If Al-Qaeda is pile-driving planes into the World Trade Centers, they don't really care that much about, you know, what's in the Constitution and what the First, Second, Third, and Fourth Amendments are. What they care about are the, are the Kardashians. That's what drives them bananas, right? That, you know, the sense that Coca-Cola, NFL football, 
Toy Story 3, all this stuff is projected upon them, um, and they have essentially no way to fight back. The institutions that Americans love and by which they're defined um, as a nation by the rest of the world are really enshrined and protected in the documents that we have. That, to me, is patriotism. And I think that's what Macron is trying to define, that that is the part of American life that we should be uh, trying to protect and trying to uphold for the rest of the planet. For Trump to turn around and talk about himself as a nationalist is saying, particularly from the position of an alleged billionaire uh, who is um, uh, in office and clearly doing everything possible to protect uh, American capitalism as he sees it, that his idea of nationalism is this um, Norman Rockwell vision of what it means to be an American that you can project around the planet and that you can define to people at home um, in a way that they'll vote for. Um, that is an attack upon diversity. That's a cover for corporate rapaciousness. Um, and, you know, worse in terms of what Macron was trying to develop, and this is why I think it's apt, it provides cover for white nationalism. Uh, it makes it seem acceptable and mainstream to protect that alleged Norman Rockwell vision of what it means to be an American. Um, and that is, you know, it is rotting um, our image to the core uh, overseas. Not to at all justify any attacks on the part of ISIS, but I don't think it was a culture criticism. I think it had to do with American military presence in the Middle East and the effect of the long effects that, only, that are not limited to the United States of America of imperialism in the Middle East. It doesn't justify at all the attack on Amer American citizens or the attacks of September 11th, but I think it's far more than the Kardashians. So it is amazing how quickly 30 minutes passes, um, because I have a truckload of questions that I'd still like to ask, but we'd st we want to make time for our questions from our audience. So um, Lynn um, is standing there with the mic, so if anyone would like to come up and ask a question, uh, we just thank you in advance for keeping your question in the form of a question um, so that we can get through as many as possible. So happy to have people take it away. Sure, I'll bite. I'll start. Um, this question is for the ambassador. And I wondered if um, you might comment on uh, the current president's propensity to, you know, at least as the media is creating it, to side with strongmen, to, you know, and, and I'm paraphrasing, cozy up to Russia, to North Korea. From your view as a diplomat, um, what's your reading on this? Is it dangerous? Is it somewhat savvy? As a diplomatic strategy, can you comment on that, please? Uh, dangerous, I think, is not an unfair word from a diplomat's perspective. Again, we are supposed to stand for something, and we have a reputation which has an impact around the world. As you can see, not only with the Philippines, Russia, um, um, Marine Le, Le Pen in, in France, I mean, there are others, or in fact, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. Um, as the president has seemed to accept certain behaviors around the world, it opens the gate for more of that behavior. And again, because we have stood some, for something in the last 50 years plus, 
we were, as diplomats, able to go into host nations, to presidents, to prime ministers, foreign ministers, and say, this behavior is unacceptable, and use our leverage to make that known. And we have always been the big dog on the world stage. We are acting like it less in the way that fulfills and supports American values and ideals. Not that we aren't not acting arrogantly, but that we aren't doing it in support of American values and ideals, which we have generally discerned are good for the world at large. This question is for the panel at large. I know none of you are political scientists per se, but what do you feel, in your, like in your opinion, what would be the effective messaging for the opposition in, in the United States case in 2020 uh, in relation to, as you'd mentioned earlier, a lot of the masking of the white supremacy agenda is in relation to the Norman Rockwell vision, and particularly in the United States where we have electoral college, so much of that messaging is economic in that sense, and that's where a lot of it's going to go. And communities like Youngstown, our situation here with GM, what would you think that a candidate in 2020, uh, that message needs to look like in order to not just address things like white supremacy, but to be able to counter comprehensively what that agenda brings with it? Well, I guess what I would go back to uh, is um, that notion of meritocracy uh, that, um, that I was talking about before, that uh, you, I think, need to find a way to uh, make uh, as much as possible every individual feel like they have a stake in the uh, economic um, uh, success of the United States in general um, and in the protection of the um, individual rights of every person uh, that comes here in order to achieve that success. Um, that you have to find a way of making it seem as if, uh, again, that, that the person who uh, becomes the car mechanic uh, is as valuable to society as um, the person who is, you know, I, you know, in the latest thing, who is getting uh, uh, accepted to Harvard as an Asian-American student. Um, that there has to be kind of a way of, you know, of balancing this out and making it seem as if uh, your worker at Lordstown has a stake in Mexican migrants uh, making their way to this country as well and, try, and that they both have similar interests in making it based upon the values that were you know, enshrined in this country that you know, we're supposed to be projecting overseas um, uh, over the past 250 years. Uh, you know, that's, that's obviously you know, way out there as opposed to something very specific. But... Um, uh, that seems to be what, where Trump's appeal came from. How was it that he was able to walk into a place like Lordstown and just openly lie to these people and tell them that he was going to save their jobs? When, I mean, frankly, he had no opportunity whatsoever to make a decision on that kind of thing. He got away with it largely because he, because he was at least willing to talk about those kind of problems. And a similar politician, I think, has got to find a way to talk about those sorts of issues and other issues uh, that uh, would impact those people and show how we're all effectively the same. Uh, I would add just this, right? Uh, 
illiberalism is rising because liberalism is failing, right? We like to pretend that liberalism is a set of values and ideals and principles that we can just enshrine and say and say that we love. And that's a bit pernicious because it's not that. It always, it always took place in a context. And when the, the people who came up with these values that we all hold so dear, when they came up with it, this was a very privileged few in Europe and in the United States of America. And their ability to extend these privileges to themselves on the one hand reflected their rising power against an established landed aristocracy. And on the other hand, a power derived from the exploitations of populations in distant lands and growing populations of urban poor. So now we're trying to give this to everybody as if these promises weren't based on inequity in the first place. So I don't have an answer, but if we're going to be making these sorts of promises, right, we need to do so in a way that's going to avoid the inevitable resentment of promises unfulfilled. Personally, right now, I'm swayed by a globally focused intersectional feminist socialism. I don't know if we can put that into place. I don't know if the fact that it's rooted in socialism is still too backwards looking. I don't have a good answer, but it's Hanukkah, and Hanukkah is a celebration of the banishment of darkness, of light banishing darkness, a miracle of light that lasted far longer and more strongly than it was supposed to. Now, that's not the world I feel I inhibit right now, not at all. I feel, a, I feel surrounded by darkness, and I am not optimistic at all. But I'll share with you something that I tell my students. Right? Why, do, why study history? Why study people? Because people are fascinating. I teach a course on the Holocaust, and students want to know how this could happen, and pretty quickly they realize that we do things like this to each other all the time. And what's fascinating about us, right? Because this seems to be the most human of behaviors to make groups and kill each other, is that we, develop, that we developed a word for this. Inhumane. We're the only animal that does, as far as I know, I can't understand my dog, right? We're the only animal that has these innate behaviors, that does these awful things to one another and says, that's not us. And in that, perhaps, is the core of a potential miracle, the ability to stop and rethink. Right? And if that's the place where we can start shedding light to banish darkness, maybe that's a step forward. As for a program and a message, I don't have one, but we have to realize what both the extremists on the left and the right realize. That, and it is an anti-liberal position, that the fundamental unit of society is society itself in which the individual understands themselves and gains their rights and privileges. As long as the left and I mean here the Democratic Party, keeps pushing a liberal individualist politics, it will fail. I actually um, have a question that's related to the GM um, you know, situation as well. And in, in the aftermath of GM's announcement to shutter its Lordstown plant, the Ohio Democratic Party issued a statement that included the following. Um, the news that GM is shuttering the, down its Lordstown plant right in the middle of the holiday season is a dagger in the hearts of Ohio's working people. It's hard to watch when Ohio workers are given the opportunity they can compete with workers anywhere 
in the world. GM should give the people of the Mahoning Valley that chance. So your response have, have alluded to the fact, you know, the economic factors impacting what's been an economic divide, an ideological divide, and certainly a regional divide across the country. But what are the perceived and actual roles of multinational corporations in this swing to illiberalism? Would anyone care to take that one on? I mean, we can look at the Amazon decision to go to New York mm -hmm. and to go to Virginia, and it just shows a lack of commitment to the needs of the nation writ large. It makes sense from that narrow perspective to go where salaries are already high, there are a lot of things that will please a workforce, but it should be in Kansas or Ohio or maybe not Georgia, Mississippi, so many other places. He could have done such good for the nation if he had made a different choice. It's so disappointing. But how you square that, that uh, business greed <laughs> priority versus the good of the nation and, and corporate citizenships is often bought off with supporting a, a ballet or an art museum and I was just talking to someone who's going to be writing a, a chapter or a book on democracy and philanthropy. And philanthropy is undemocratic. It's one person or one foundation deciding what the priorities are as opposed to what the nation needs. So I'm not a socialist, but I'm not thinking highly of corporations this week. <laughs> and, and I'll add to that, right? The answers don't only necessarily have to be socialist. I think we have a lot a long way to go if we're going to transform America in that way anyway. But I was reading this morning that El I think Elizabeth Warren uh, proposed a bill that would mandate that in large corporations, 40% of the board gets elected by uh, the employees. And Germany has similar structures. And German workers have ex excellent standards of living, and it has not hurt German competition. Right? I don't think we can expect the wealthy or corporations to, do, to act in our best interest, particularly when we've legally defined their obligation to their shareholders, right? So we have to demand it, right? We need the strength, whether it's socialist or not, of organized labor and not the kind of labor organization that seeks to keep the company alive, but that, that, that demands of the company to realize that it can only survive with our cooperation and only if they're working in our best interests. What makes the question so huge in terms of what you were talking about, um, both of you, is the fact that essentially what you're talking about is a war between the state and the economy, you know? Um, and that is a war that the state has been surrendering to for the past 50 years. Um, essentially, um, how you are going to turn uh, the international corporation into a tool that is promoting democracy, promoting the values that brought the corporation about. Um, God, I mean, if, if you have the answer to that one, you have my vote for president. You know? uh, it's just not, um, it's not happening. I mean, we're, we're starting to get to the intersection where, uh, which I think, you know, back in the, you know, the alleged golden era in American history, from the 40s through the 70s, uh, when the economy was booming, when people were making their way through civil rights into becoming equal members of society and the like, making attempts to do that, when people were getting 
educations and moving along. And that period of time, I, mean, I don't think that you can ignore the fact that everybody seemed to think that democracy and capitalism went hand in hand. And we're suddenly finding that that's not the case anymore. How do you turn that? And we continue to subsidize them. Right, that's right. We're subsidizing them, whether it's the tax breaks that we're giving Amazon, or I was reading about a fabulous museum that's in Virginia that you have to make a booking three months in advance, and taxpayers subsidize because it's philanthropy. <laughs> but very few people get to go to that museum, so I'm going to go. <laughs> and this, this also has had dramatic effects overseas. Right? So I study Czechoslovakia and Central Europe, uh, and I used to run study abroad programs there, and I took my students to Radio Free Europe, and uh, the director at the time was talking about how they helped spread democracy and capitalism, and I said, wait, I thought your job was to spread democracy. Uh, and he explained that in his view, democracy and capitalism are absolute, absolutely inseparable. And what we saw in 1989, and I'm specifically talking about Czechoslovakia here, is a desire for a third way between capitalism and socialism, a desire really to somehow manifest the promises of the Prague Spring of 1968, a socialism with a human face. And in large part because of pressure from the United States, but also Western Europe, and simply the pressure of a globalized economy, their economy itself turned Thatcherite quite quickly. Yeah. Right? And that was devastating for a large portion of, 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 of the citizens. Czech Republic is doing wonderfully now, right? but we see dislocations in Hungary, uh, we've seen dislocations in Poland, and this demand that our form of capitalism, which is the time seems to have been run up for us as well, be imposed there, we should have seen what was coming for us when we saw the dislocations there, not to mention Russia. Thatcherite politics, I think, has come to dominate most of the European states uh, in one way or another. And, you know, just to follow up on something you were talking about a little bit earlier, can't forget it was Margaret Thatcher who said there's no such thing as society. Okay? And that is, you know, that's the definition of what the problem is. Okay? So I'm going to go from the multinational to um, the very personal. And this next question is um, for the ambassador. Um, we're in the midst of a holiday season. And um, on that personal level, we're not just a nation divided, but often we're members of families that are divided about these issues, um, preferring to remain silent just to get through dinner. And I know some of us um, have been there. Um, but to what extent is remaining silent both publicly um, you know, and privately, you know, and those more interpersonal, you know, situations. How is that a form, or is it a form of complicity? I mean, how do we begin and continue these conversations with family and friends? Something you recently wrote about in a New York Times opinion piece, a Trump-sized hole in our relationship. Yes. And guess what, guys? You get to answer this question, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I, I did write about a very dear, beloved uh, woman friend who is a Trump supporter, someone I've known my entire life, respected, uh, and then got smacked in the face with that. So uh, we remain friends. We continue to communicate. And 
The first thing I will say is that it is absolutely imperative that we continue to talk across those lines. So you may need to call a truce at holidays. I did spend the holiday with her, and we had no politics at dinner. Uh, but everybody was on their phone watching the news, not talking, just watching. And we continue to have the conversations rarely in person, usually via email or text message, sometimes on the phone. But the more personal it gets, the more likely it is we're going to do violence to each other. And we really do want to maintain the relationship. So I believe it's important that we stop shutting ourselves off in news and information silos. I think we do our nation a disservice, even though it's comforting, it's nice to wrap up with Fox News if that's what your worldview is, and hear from all the people that agree with you, who understand the sensibleness of your position, or MSNBC, to go to bed listening to MSNBC. But it does not help keep communication open. If we don't understand how different the daily intake of information and news that each side is receiving. It's astounding. You can watch one station, and what they're talking about is not mentioned. It's as if it didn't happen on another station. So we can't talk to each other if we don't understand where the positions come from. You don't have to agree with it, but you do at least have to understand it. And that means we're going to have to make ourselves uncomfortable by listening to the other side. So when I speak to this dear friend, I know the craziness she's been listening to. So I can say, I heard X, Y, and Z, I heard that, but what about this? Because that was on a different channel. And so we're able to have the conversation that way. And even though we are often furious with each other, we keep talking, and every administration is at most eight years, and then we got to figure it out. So talking to each other maybe not in person all the time, but making sure that you know where the other person's coming from and making yourself uncomfortable to ensure that you know what else is out there. We have to come together. I struggle with this, right? You know, I'd love to say that everyone in my family agrees with everything that I'm saying. And fortunately, my brother and sister and I have similar views, and some people in my family don't. So we get together, uh, uh, and like many families, we try not to talk politics. Uh, because we don't meet that often. My rule is that I'm not going to bring up politics, but if you say something, right? If you want to have peace in the house, the Jewish concept of shalom bayit, which we did not invent, right? Trying to have a nice home, right? If someone violates that, but if they violate it in a way that makes someone else feel less at home, then I can't be quiet, right? If it's my privilege to rest with something homophobic or racist or misogynist that somebody said, that's abusive if I sit there quietly. So we can either not have a conversation or have it, but at some point, it has to be had. My bigger question, and one I wrestle with, is what to do with friends who are public figures. And this has happened to me a number of times, who are not only my, you know, my relative who has very different opinions than I do, but dear friends who I grew up with and love, who are doing what I think are very bad things in this world, bringing hatred into this world, and we're so close, and we work on such close things at times that I've had to mention friends of mine in articles that I'm writing and name them with a, disclose, with a, a statement like, by the way, we're lifelong friends. And it has troubled that friendship, and I miss my friend dearly. And it's not only one. Right? There are at least two, seriously. And I don't know what to do about that, because what does it mean if I still pile around with this person? 
right? I'm not going to change their opinion. They're activists for something I don't believe in, and I don't know how to bridge that. And if anyone has any solutions, I'm all ears. I don't have any. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, you know, in answering this question, the first thing that I thought about was my parents, who my, my father is 94, my mother is 84. Uh, and... Um, when Trump, when Trump was running for president, my wife and I basically stayed silent during the entire election campaign. I mean, when we would come to the House, we would just try really hard not to bring it up as best we possibly could. But finally, you know, just this past trip that we took there, I can't remember what I saw on the TV, but I snapped at it because I was just so angry that, that this was being perpetuated on Fox News and that opened up the floodgates. And... We ended up howling at each other for 45 minutes about politics for the longest period of time. I think in general with my parents, and I would assume this is the case with uh, other people, you know, the comedian Mark Maron puts it really well when he finds out that somebody that he knows has voted for Trump. He's like, what do I do with you now? (laughs) And I think the way that it tends to work with them is that if I can find an individual example of somebody that they know in their lives that represents the sort of issues that I can find in the news, I can get them to back off a little bit. You know, it's, it's one thing to sit and talk about issues that are, you know, global, um, where you talk about, say, you know, when you're talking about immigration, Mexicans, you know. It's another thing when I'm able to talk to them about the guy in their um, retirement community that they see and wave at on the road when he is mowing, you know, the golf course that's there and try to talk to them about the fact that, you know, this pleasant guy that you see mowing is probably struggling to make it for his own family um, and pay his bills and has come here trying to make it in America. I mean, how come he doesn't, you know, how come you don't believe that he has the same rights uh, as everyone else? And then we can start to have a dialogue um, on a personal level. But boy, is it hard. Boy, is it hard to do. The best thing about being the moderator is that you don't have to answer the questions you ask. (laughs) But I see we do have a question from the audience. I'd like to just speak a little bit or ask you a little bit about this whole concept of otherness, which you've talked about as being a powerful force in our perceptions and our communication around the world. And, but address it to at least a couple of you that have regular contact with a, a young voting population um, with the, the idea that we, have, we see in our grandchildren, for instance, that um, they have grown up in an age in which otherness has a very different definition from when I grew up. Um, their exposure to a wider variety of people in the media and in society as a whole with regard to gender identification or the role of women. Um, Is there anything that we could be uh, hopeful about with young people who have really grown up with a different exposure than we adults, (laughs) older adults have? Thank you. Well, I would throw out that that's actually my major reason for optimism. You know, my dad's 94. He's only got so long to go. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, just those kind, you know, and I'm I'm being flipped. But the idea is 
You know, I, the coming generations, I mean, I see it in my kids, too. Um, their exposure, you know, the idea of otherness is, in some respects, you know, it's, it's still there, but it seems to be sort of be in decline. Uh, and that gives me a lot of hope for the future, just maybe not, you know, the 2020 election or something. Um, but, you know, when we're talking in the long term, I no idea how issues are going to come up. Clearly, there's going to be other problems that are going to arise that we can't anticipate. But uh, as far as um, the acceptance of diversity, the, you know, breakdown of the ideas, you know, I guess where I started where the concept of the nation came from uh, and the like, you know, that is, that's, that is where hope lies uh, in the long run. And I, and I think we need to think about this not only as students seeing other people, but as a lot of young people seeing themselves for the first time, right? I can say that because I'm a white guy who's always seen white guys on TV, and I'm 41, so things are already a little different when I was growing up. But we're also seeing a rising generation of people who have been considered others, may still be considered others, who are seeing themselves, and that's extremely important. And I think there is some reason to have optimism, right? Even on the far-right grouping. Say, take the Proud Boys are at least officially pro-gay, right? That would not, not have happened when I was a kid. It would not have happened 10 years ago, I don't think. But on the other hand, after the massacre of Jews in Pittsburgh, I was talking to my students and they said, we didn't know that anti-Semitism was still a thing. We didn't know that people could be anti-Semitic and I just participated in a, a panel at YSU to explain to the public what anti-Semitism is. And a lot of the students didn't know. Now, I should feel good about that as a Jewish American, that it doesn't seem to be part of their lives. But it also means that they don't have the ability to recognize it, to stand up for it, and to stop it. And I worry how easily we can slip into the race blindness that I was brought up with, that we're all the same, where students lack the ability to see the structures of ongoing oppression and the enduring uh, effects of centuries of oppression, right? So I think there's a trade-off here, and, and I think that's what we saw in, in Charlottesville at Unite the Right. So I'm, I'm sort of, I guess, between the two of you in terms of optimism there. Yeah. You're our last question, Barbara. Well, it, it sort of comes back to this one that you have raised about optimism and whether it lies in the young or not. And... Um, I guess I sort of feel strongly about the fact of exploring the fact that we live in different communities and at least um, what we may feel as part of an urban community uh, and, and the upcoming generation may be indeed very different if you want to comment on that from what is going on in say southern Ohio and the like that continue to give us. And I, I, I'm wondering whether you have anything to say about how we do address that split. Because I would say personally, I have a granddaughter who has said is in a senior in high school and never wants to live in rural America again. Because they know what anti-Semitism is, even though I doubt that there are any Jews in the school that she went to. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder how you do you have any ideas about how you address that? <laughs> no. 
Well, it certainly is a universal problem. Look at Rwanda with Hutus and Tutsis and massive killings, though they can't tell them apart to look at them, or Northern Ireland with Protestants and Catholics. There, as I, Jacob, you may have said that the humans will find a way to be mean to each other. That's what we do. Um, demographics are going to play a significant part in this country. I don't know when the shift will be so that you know rural America is a, a great minority, uh, but it certainly is coming because people continue to move to the cities and not want to live in the rural parts of the nation. Uh, whether that's going to help, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And, and I would add maybe one of two things. One is, right, I think, I don't know when it was, but we passed the point where half of the humans in the world live in cities, and that's going to increase. But with automation, I don't see us having enough jobs for everybody. So we're going to need to rethink the way we structure things. And if it means that people from rural areas, and I don't want to stigmatize people from rural areas as if that's where hate happens, right? We have histories of hate in, in, in major cities in the United States of America, right? We have, you can do a history of lynching in different cities that emptied southern communities of African Americans. Right? So it's not necessarily a rural problem alone. It articulates differently in cities. Um, the other qu thing that I think needs at least mentioned in this conversation is climate change. Right? And we've benefited from the processes in the, in the industrialized and urban north that have contributed and driven climate change. And now there are going to be billions with a B of people mm -hmm. needing safe refuge. And that means coming north. So I think these demographic questions about the United States of America, given the report that the UN put out and that our own government put out, whether or not the president has read or believes it, right, that's what we need to be thinking about. I think this discussion about these small American moves are going to be well overshadowed within the next two decades. I think it's hard to anticipate how things are going to go uh, in the future as far as the urban-rural divide. Uh, is concerned. I mean, there's some sense that uh, that I've had that you know we may be looking in the next hundred years, you know, in, in terms of uh, emphasis on you know potentially dividing uh, the United States up into sections with the cultural divides that exist. Um, but again, um, you know, who's to say how that's going to turn out? Um, uh, how uh, you know whether that's going to result in you know, absolute, you know, demographic disaster, um, political violence and all, or whether it is going to um, result in people coming together and recognizing diversity um, and pulling away from it. Uh, I would prefer to think the latter. I would still prefer to think the latter, even after Charlottesville, which I would hope, I would hope that this whole period is the last gasp of white nationalism. Um, that the sense is that, you know, this is the moment that it's finally been exposed and, you know, turning over the rock eventually is going to, you know, disperse, uh, you know, the horrors underneath it. Um, but I, I, I have to believe that in order to keep going, you know. And with that last question, I want to thank our panelists and all of you for such a fabulous dialogue this evening. And now I will officially close this meeting of the City Club of the Mahoning Valley. Mm.